When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Jill Reed, and this is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. A bald man with broad shoulders and piercing blue eyes joined them in the room. Detective Crooks is nearby, Mr. Bliss said. If you are caught at a crime scene... He didn't finish. He didn't have to. We're going, Skullduggery said. He pulled on his coat and wrapped his scarf around the lower half of his skull. We appreciate you calling us in on this, by the way. Detective Crooks is unsuited to an investigation of this nature, Bliss responded. Which is why the sanctuary needs you and Miss Kane to return to our employ. There was a slight hint of amusement in Skullduggery's voice. I think Turid Guild might disagree with you there. You just heard an excerpt from The Faceless Ones. It's book three of Derek Landy's Skullduggery Pleasant series, and it's narrated by one of our 2022 Golden Voices, Rupert Degas. Rupert is a versatile, in-demand performer, particularly in voiceovers, commercials, and, of course, audiobooks. He has an uncanny mastery over more than a dozen national accents, and an equally impressive number of regional ones. Are you looking for Glasgow, Edinburgh, or a Highlands accent? Whichever one, Rupert's your man. And if your book contains trolls, goblins, demons, or skeletons, Rupert's there for that as well. In fact, you could say they're one of his many sweet spots. The elasticity of his voice is astounding. And luckily for us, that's matched by a sharp intelligence and emotional depth that always serves the text. Listening to books narrated by Rupert is an immersive experience. He performs them, whether it's Pantalaimon in The Golden Compass, Skullduggery Pleasant, Gerald Durrell's Memoirs, or classics like Animal Farm. We get a compelling oral show. With almost 300 audiobook titles to his name, Rupert has racked up quite a few awards, including 18 earphones from Audiophile Magazine, and now he's been named a Golden Voice, an honor which acknowledges a body of consistently outstanding work. Rupert Degas has made his home in Sydney for quite some time, but he was born and raised in London in a family with more than one tie to show business. 
Gosh, my father was a screenwriter and a producer. He uh, co-wrote Barbarella, the Jane Fonda film directed by Roger Vadim. He co-wrote that with Terry Southern. He then went on to do the Colditz series with David McCallum and Robert Wagner and Edward Hardwick for the BBC in the 70s as well. And my mother was um, a TV presenter and a broadcaster. She started presenting shows on the BBC like uh, Top of the Pops and W Money and, and all these kind of things. And, and she was one of the first presenters of Satellite Home Shopping uh, back in the, in the 80s before it all uh, became QVC and everything. So, yes, uh, that's, that's my family background, yeah. I think equally important to your present career is that you also traveled a lot when you were a kid. Yes, absolutely. We um, we traveled a hell of a lot. My mother and I and my brother would drive down to Spain uh, for our summer holidays and we'd go in the car on the way doing silly voices and having a laugh. And then um, when I was nine or eight, I moved to uh, New York where I lived with my father and he was with Gloria Swanson at the time. This is a, a crazy story, but my father met Gloria Swanson from Sunset Boulevard fame and he was working as her agent manager, I guess. And they collaborated on her autobiography, Swanson on Swanson. So uh, eventually they got together and uh, they were in a relationship and we lived in New York for a bit. And um, so I had uh, Gloria Swanson as my as my stepmother for a few years living in, in New York. Oh, my goodness. It's not too much of a stretch to say you really grew up in show business. Oh, it's definitely in the blood. Yeah, yes. I mean, if you cut me, I bleed. Um, <laughs> I bleed the theatre and television and film. Yes, indeed. <laughs> How old were you when you started acting? The first time I had a microphone put in front of me was when I was a day old. Uh, my mother was working for the BBC World Service at the time, and um, she recorded my voice crying to send to my grandfather who lived in Buenos Aires live over the BBC World Service. And then after that, my mother kept putting a microphone in front of my face and making me, me read. She had little signs everywhere, sort of table, chair, sofa, something like that, and encouraged me to read and write. So I was pretty literate by the time I was two and a half, three, three and a half and a lot of people sort of said, oh, Rupert's quite advanced of his age. And my mother said, yes, well, you know, I'm encouraging him to read words and to love words. And so that's kind of how it all started. And when did you begin to actually perform in front of people who were strangers? <laughs> yeah, my mother entered me into a competition music and drama competition and I did a speech from Julius Caesar by Shakespeare as Cassius and I came second I was 11 years old and of course people are thinking oh he's gonna be an actor he's definitely gonna be an actor um, then I started doing some pantomime work up at church at the church hall which was uh, which was terrific fun um I don't know if you have pantomimes in America, but it's sort of, um, they're like, it's like Aladdin, Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, stuff like that. And you have principal boy is played by a girl and then the, the dame is played by um, a man in drag. And so we would did, did numbers from the musicals. And that's when I sort of started falling in love with the theatre, really, was um, dressing up and doing numbers from the musicals and very sort of what house genders. And then one thing led to another, really. Did the school plays, was very interested in theatre at school. Didn't like sport at all. I went to a school that was very heavily um, involved with rugby and rowing and all that, and I would do everything I can to bunk off games and uh, and go into the 
the theatre and did um, Arsing an Old Lace and uh, we did Twelfth Night and Death of a Salesman. Uh, we did all those at school. And a casting director was looking for public school boys um, to be in a movie set in 1930s Germany around the time of Kristallnacht, um, at the rise of, of, of Hitler. So I... Um, Got, I had an audition in the school hall where I did all the school plays and I got a job on this movie so um, yeah and that was my first movie and on the on that film I chatted to the actor playing our teacher and he introduced me to his agent so then I got my first theatrical agent and carried on doing a bit more of this a bit more telly a few more plays it just built from there started um Something like that, really. One thing begets another, you know. It's um, one thing leads to another, and before you know it, oh, this is my, this is my job now. As one thing led to another, what led you to audiobooks? It's quite weird because I started to do film dubbing, which was a nice way to earn a bit of a living, and well, not earn a living, but have a bit of pocket money. And I was in the studio, and out of the other studio came. Biggs from Star Wars, Mr. Garrick Hagen, who you know, and I'm like, oh my God, you're Biggs from Star Wars, and that him, Garrick Hagen, nice to meet you, and da da da, and and I got chatting to him, and he introduced me to somebody to get me into to do loop group work on movies, and at the same time, my mother had introduced me to her friend Robert Rietti from the '60s. They were great mates, who was known as the Man of a Thousand Voices, who revoiced all these films, and. One thing led to another. Again, I just found myself working in the ADR loop group dubbing world with this repertory company of, of actors, Gary Kagan, Jay Benedict, Sean Barrett, people like that. They also all did audiobooks too. And I did an audiobook called True History of the Kelly Gang, and that was my very first book, so it was a bit of a baptism of fire. But it was fantastic. Lots of Irish characters, Scottish characters. Yeah, it was great. And you had your own recording studio pretty early on. Yes. I had a company called Q Sound. I had a production house in London. And Garrick introduced me to Nicholas Soames at Naxos. And so at my recording studio, all these producers would come in. Peter Rinney from HarperCollins, Nicholas Soames. And I started working for them. And Peter Rinney asked me to do the Skullduggery Pleasant. And I also met Dirk Maggs through Garrick Hagen as well. In fact, Garrick, if you're listening to this, I owe you a lot of my career. And I've since been working with Dirk Maggs for the last 25 years. God, it has, it has been that long, hasn't it? Um, on various plays and uh, radio plays and stuff, and like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Starship Titanic. So it's all kind of happened all at the same time. I was doing voiceovers, I had a voice agent, I had an acting agent, I was doing theatre, film, TV, audiobooks. Um, radio plays, comedy, and it all kind of um, happened at once. And we were one sort of happy family, the sort of repertory company of, of actors. In London, you, you kind of do everything, really. And I was very lucky to be part of a, a group of, of jobbing voice actors who occasionally um, got to show their ugly mugs on, on, on camera or on stage even. And this is also around the time that you were part of the cast of what is still my favorite audiobook, The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. And, you know, I find it interesting that while I reread books a lot, I don't re-listen very often at all, with the single exception 
of The Golden Compass. And every time I do re-listen to it, I am captivated all over again. And in that, you play the pivotal character of Pantalaimon. And that just must have been such an amazing project to work on. Yeah, it was it it was interesting that you called it an an audio book because I see it more like a radio drama. I suppose it is an audio book. It's a radio drama within an audio book. It was great. So again, Garrick Hagen again and and uh, lovely lovely dear Mist uh, Bill DeFries asked me to play Pantalaimon because they needed someone who could become all these other characters because he's a demon on Lyra's shoulder and his voice changes depending on the animal that he is. So, you know, uh, yeah, I'll get Rupert. <laughs> and um, so when we found out that Philip Pullman would be sitting there narrating the book as the narrator and we'd all be kind of there as this sort of, again, a repertory company of actors around Philip. So when Philip would be sitting at the table narrating the book, we'd all then come in with our lines as our characters. So it was almost like a radio play within an audio book, and I think it worked uh, It worked really well, yeah. Lyra heard a tiny whisper. Obviously, Pantalaimon had squeezed in beside her. We're going to have to stay here now. Why don't you listen to me? She didn't reply until the steward had left. It was his job to supervise the waiting at the high table. She could hear the scholars coming into the hall, the murmur of voices, the shuffle of feet. It's a good thing I didn't. We wouldn't have seen the master put poison in the wine otherwise. Pan, that was the Tokai he asked the butler about. They're going to kill Lord Asriel. You don't know it's poison? Oh, of course it is. Don't you remember? He made the butler leave the room before he did it. If it was innocent, it wouldn't have mattered the butler seeing. And I know there's something going on. Something political. The servants have been talking about it for days. Pan, we could prevent a murder. Oh, I've never heard such nonsense. How do you think you're going to keep still for four hours in this pokey wardrobe, hmm? Let me go and look in the corridor. I'll tell you when it's clear. It was brilliant. And it was terrific fun to do as well. I wonder, you have such a genius for accents. When I was looking at your website and you have this list of accents that you can do that goes on and on and on. (laughs) Yeah. Is there any accent that you have even a semi-hard time with? Well... Funny you should mention that. Um, I live in Australia, as you know, and New Zealand is just over the ditch. And uh, I actually struggle with the Kiwi accent a bit because it's too, it's a very hard accent to do without sounding like you're taking the piss out of the the different vowels. And I do quite a lot of work uh, for for clients in New Zealand in, in, in advertising. And they don't like the Australian accent. So if, as as Aussies don't tend to get on the, the radio or the TV in New Zealand because they Australia is like a different country from New Zealand, very much so. And the Kiwis have a much more British sense sensibility to them, and they either like quite well-spoken English accents or well-spoken Kiwi accents. And actually doing a subtle New Zealand accent is, is, is difficult, and I do struggle with that because it's the only accent I find that I'm thinking about it. Most accents I do... I don't think about them. They trip off the tongue. And that's the key, is if you don't overthink something, it sounds more real. As soon as you start overthinking it, you you come unstuck and you trip up. And so for me, the, the Kiwi accent is something that I, even though a lot of people say, oh, your Kiwi accent's amazing. I'm like, for me personally, I know that every now and then it's not that perfect and there's certain things that um, aren't right. 
but I'm getting there and I've, I've yet to do a whole audio book in a New Zealand accent which I think I would be scared of doing but short form stuff uh, is fine <laughs> yeah but generally speaking I don't really have a problem with accents I love doing them I have narrated I narrated a book by Christo Brand uh, called Nelson Mandela My Life I think or My My Prison Mandela My Prisoner he was Nelson Mandela's prison guard at Robben Island for the 27 years that Mandela was was in prison and um, it's written in the first person it's his biography of, of his experience at Robben Island and uh, Christo Brand has got a really strong strong Afrikaans accent he's very has this kind of way of talking that is very very, very sort of Transvaal and you can't really sustain that for 10 hours I mean you, I could sustain it but, but for the listener it might not be that palatable to listen to to this kind of way so I spoke to the producers and I said look can we make it more of a well-spoken sort of Cape Town accent you know that's a little bit more easy to understand that's more the kind of relaxed South African accent that you would normally hear somewhere else and it worked quite well I'm just trying to keep the voices as real as possible which I which I really enjoy doing how do you prepare for narrating Rupert let's say Animal Farm which came out recently how do you how do you prepare for for narrating a book well, first of all, like with Animal Farm, for example, I would just go to Google. I, I knew what it was about. I'd read it at school. I knew that it was a, a an allegory for communism in Stalinist Russia and uh, it was sort of George Orwell, 1984, et cetera, et cetera. So I knew that what it was about, but I thought, who are these characters, right? So I Googled, okay, so who who is... Napoleon, who is Squealer, who is Old Major, and, and you Google it, it'll say, this is um, Leo Trotsky, this is um, Stalin, this is Karl Marx. And I thought, okay, right, I wanted to modernize it. I wanted to do my version of Animal Farm that was, and I'm a political satirist as well, it's my little side hustle. And so I thought, who do I think in my mind would be the modern version of these characters? So Old Major, for example. Um, Karl Marx, you know, the founder of communism, very sort of, you know, um, intelligent, deeply uh, smart man who's towards the end of his life. I thought, well, you know, Noam Chomsky. So I basically voiced, uh, you know, the old majors, uh, Noam Chomsky to, uh, you know, get that to come across. And uh, this is all for my own amusement, um, mind you. And then uh, there's the character of Squealer, who's described as this sort of um, self-important. He's a narcissist. He loves the sound of his own voice. He runs around telling telling everyone what they should do and how they should behave. Um, so I went, well, who better than, than, you know, the Donald? Donald Trump makes Squealer the Donald. We pigs are brain workers. The whole management and organization of this farm depend on us. Day and night, we are watching over your welfare. It is for your sake that we drink that milk and eat those apples. Do you know what would happen if we pigs failed in our duty? Jones would come back. Yes, Jones would come back. Surely, comrades cried Squealer almost pleadingly, skipping from side to side and whisking his tail. Surely there is no one among you who wants to see Jones come back. And I thought that was appropriate. It was my, it was all for my own amusement. But yeah, it was, I, I love doing things like that. It's all to me. It's about the voices. You've done so much work with Naxos narrating classics. And I wonder if you approach these works differently from modern work for any number of reasons, because we're familiar with them, because the writing is often of a different time. People wrote in longer sentences, longer paragraphs. 
Oh, for sure. Look, I mean, um, the nice thing about Naxos is that they tend to do the classics and the sort of what I would call the dead authors. And most of the time I'm doing living authors. So when I'm working with the, the living authors, I, they, I can talk to them, I can speak to them, they can give me crib sheets for the characters, etc. But when you're doing something which is written 100 years ago, people spoke differently in those days as well. The, the accents were different. The, the, the attitude was different. There was, it wasn't as lazy as it is now. Well, the, just the vernacular was different. So again, they need a bit more research because I can't speak to the authors and get my, my cheat sheet for, for the character voices. So I've got to do a little bit of research, you know, things like Beaugest and um, I did uh, Dracula stories, Bram Stoker and Saki short stories as well. Recently, I've just done a, a book called The Black Moth by... Um, Georgette Heyer. Yeah, Georgette Heyer. Again, see, that was set in the 18th century, 17th century. Now, I've got this theory that back in the 17th century in England, people spoke more like that, right? Because the modern RP accent you hear now kind of came out of Victorian England into early radio, early broadcasting, so that the shipping forecast and the agricultural forecast could be understood by all these different villages and towns around England that had lots of different accents. I mean, Cornwall even had a different language, for goodness sake. Whereas before then, you didn't have RP. It didn't exist. So, And RP means received pronunciation. Yes. So, again, it's just a theory. But for my, for my money, I think that back in the 17th century, 16th century, English people, probably Elizabethan England going forward into Georgian England as well, spoke spoke like this. So when I was doing the Black Moth, the characters kind of sounded like that. Those characters, again, there was this R sound. So you really felt like you'd gone back in time. So the, those characters had this, oh, I say, sir. Oh, yes, you do, miss, or whatever. The lawyer became suddenly more at ease. He eyed Mr. Chadber speculatively holding a pinch of snuff to one thin nostril. Perhaps you have staying here a certain uh, Sir Anthony Ferndale, he hazarded. The gentle air of injury fell from Mr. Chadber. Certainly he had, and come only yesterday a purpose to meet his solicitor. The lawyer nodded. I am he. Be so good as to apprise Sir Anthony of my arrival. So for me... When I, when I get asked, you know, oh, do a posh English accent set in the 16th century, you know, people didn't talk like that then. They just didn't, in my opinion. I might be wrong because we don't know for sure. But I think logically, if you speak to linguists and historians, logically people would have, even the King of England would have spoken with a slight um, rhotic R. You perform books. Yeah. You're not just reading. You've followed the direction indicated by the author in the text. If they cough, you cough. If they're smoking, you inhale as though you're smoking when that's indicated. Well, you know, I'm an actor. I want to perform the book. To me, again, it goes back to the radio, back to His Dark Materials, because why was that book so good why was the what the audio book of his dark material so good because you had all these characters now when you've got someone who can um hopefully you know touch would have the versatility where they can play all these characters you want to perform it i imagine it i see it as a movie in my mind so when the writer says he whispered then of course i'm going to whisper if the character's shouting i'm going to lean back and shout if the character's getting up from a table you know you have the movement uh, yeah hello you know you've got to have that body movement they're running you know um I, for me, I want the listener to 
to feel like they're immersed in a, in a film. They're watching a film. And if you don't want that, well, tough. I love it too. Well, that's fantastic. That's really good. Some people don't, and I get that. They're entitled to, uh, to not like it. But I don't want to read something as if I'm reading the phone book. And if you're the kind of listener that wants your audiobook to sound like um, a GPS, you know, or to sound like a, a all flat in one tone, well, you're going to have to listen to, to some other narrators because it's not my bag. I'm there to perform and uh, bring those characters to life. That's when we drive off the road because we're so bored. You mentioned you talk to authors if the author is living. I'm curious, what, what questions do you ask him or her? What, what do you try to discuss with them? Well, what I like to do with, with authors is to say, look, I don't read the books first. I just There aren't enough hours in the day to read the book. And I like going on a journey with the story. So I say to the author, say, look, can you give me a rundown of the characters? Maybe not down to the guys that have got one, you know, one line or something. But if I can get a list of the the age, the gender, the regional accent, the educational level, social status, their profession, anything else. I mean, sometimes I even say to authors, um, look, if money were no object and you could do a movie of your book, who would you cast uh, in your in your mind? You know, so it can be anything. I, I get sometimes authors will send me, you know, they'll say, um, uh, Philippe. Uh, 12 years old, French. Well, great. He's a 12-year-old French boy called Philippe, clearly. Or sometimes I get things like, um, oh, he's the he's the baddie. He's he's a failed lawyer from the Midwest who got involved with such and such. And, and it's, yeah, it's really detailed. And, uh, you know, he's likes this and he went to law school and yada, yada, yada. And he's got smarts and, and he's in his late 20s and he's from this particular town. And I, it's fantastic. Any detail as little or as much, whatever the author feels I need to bring the voice that's in their head to life is happy. You know, and references are great. If someone says, look, he's a young Harrison Ford, or I had one author say to me, look, I wrote this, I wrote this with Tony Blair in my head. And I went, great, I'll just do Tony Blair. So, you know, I just made the entire character uh, Tony Blair, sort of a subtle version of that. And that sort of came out. And when you narrate a series like the Roland Sinclair series, which I love. You have to, A, determine a voice for all these characters. And as we know, Roland visits England and Germany and America, China. So there's this plethora of voices. And it's another range of accents that keep flying across the page. And you have to remember the core accents from book to book. Yes. I mean, the nice thing about doing a big series like the Roland Sinclair series is these characters become part of you because I've dealt with them for several years now. The very first book I did, Solari Gentle, the author, was in the session in the studio with me. And she was absolutely lovely. And we sort of discussed the characters and their backgrounds and their social status and their education level and where they were from and how they were raised and etc. So we found those voices. And then the more I did the books, when it got to the last book, Solari, she told me that she's hearing now my voice in her head as she's writing Roland. These characters now, she says, are in her mind. Which is great. Some, sometimes she she messages me and she says, "Oh, I've I've got some humdinger voices for you in the next book. How's your you know such and such accent? Um, I'm gonna she's gonna try and I'm gonna try and test you," she says, "and see if you can do that." Uh, which is amazing to have an author write the book with the narrator's voice in mind is fantastic. 
I saw that there was Orson Welles was in a scene with Errol Flynn. There was a bit where they go to America and they see all these actors and stuff. And to know that Solari was writing that and going, oh, I'm just going to put this character in just to see if Rupert can, can do it. I want to hear Rupert do that accent or something. Great fun. It's wonderful. I have become addicted to that series. And it's set in Australia in the in, in the 1920s and 30s, going into the early 40s and the, the later books. It was mainly in the 30s. The gentleman from Sydney stood back from the main crowd, observing the Chrysler exhibit at a distance. They stood shoulder to shoulder, a flamboyantly dressed bohemian with a Leninist goatee, a solid, sturdy man whose weathered face aged him beyond his thirty-two years, and between them, the tallest of the three, whose immaculately tailored suit was offset by dark hair that refused to stay in place. What do you think? Roland Sinclair pushed his hair back, trying to ignore an absurd feeling of disloyalty. His companions showed no such reluctance. She might just be the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Clyde Watson-Jones was determined to encourage Roland to finally bury the 1927 S-Class Mercedes he'd lost in the racing accident that had nearly taken his life. To Clyde's mind, it was time Roland got over his first love and allowed another to take her place. I wouldn't go that far, Roland murmured, distracted for a moment by a thought of Edna. She'd refused to come to Melbourne with them on the grounds that she preferred not to witness grown men reduced to simpering lovesick boys by shiny machines. Edna was ever direct. And again, you know, people in those days, you know, only sort of the Aussie accent was the larrikin kind of accent you wouldn't have had from, from Roland and his, his coterie. They, they would be far more uh, well-educated, probably they went to Oxford, you know, Roland went to Oxford University and, and they're, they're artists uh, living in Wallara, which is a, the suburb that I live in, funnily enough. But each chapter begins with a little clip from a, a newspaper uh, of the time, a genuine bit from a newspaper. And so I thought it would be fun to do the voice of the newspaper reading as if it was a radio newsreader from the day, where they sort of had this way of delivering a line, you know, and it's 1934 as Francis de Groot crosses the Harbour Bridge. And, you know, that kind of voice that one would hear reading the news on the TV or the radio of the time. Even up to the 60s, you still had that sort of... Um, that newsreader voice, and I love doing that. Rupert, let me let me ask you this. When you began narrating audiobooks, you were used to working with your voice, but an audiobook is a, a kind of a different animal. And the stamina you need, not just to create the characters, but you need that forward momentum when you're doing the narrative bit to keep pushing the story forward. What prepared you for that? Well, look, I mean, I'm very lucky now that uh, I work from my studio, which is in my house, and I dip in and out of my audiobook titles. I work on my own in my own time. I can't imagine going back to doing an audiobook with a producer in my ears and a sound engineer, etc. I like to have total control of my space and my time. And between voiceover jobs, I'll go, oh, I've got an hour and a half between my next commercial for for whatever car or, or bank or whatever I'm doing, I'll do a chapter. Um, then I'll or go and sit in the garden for a bit or make lunch, and then I'll do another chapter and then have another voiceover. So I kind of get through an audio book not all in one sitting. I used to, when I started, when I was going to studios in London, it would be, you know, 
9.30 in the studio, have a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, chat to the producer, go in the studio and and read and read a book. And you just sit there and you start. And producers are always very nice and say, look, you have a break when you when you need one. And most of the time, I'd be quite happy to just sort of keep going if I really enjoyed the book, if I was in the book, if I if I loved it and I was reading it, then I'd be in it. But I, I read a book that was just uh, awful. It was absolutely hideous. I probably won't won't mention it just to sort of protect the the guilty. But uh, it was terrible. It was very violent. It was gratuitously uh, graphic in its blood and gore and and depravity. And all of us in the studio were were clearly upset by it. And I had to take a break. Through every fifteen twenty minutes, we had to stop. It was like pushing string uphill and it was like going on an assault course all the time it was horrible it was not fun to do it was a war porn book that's a genre believe it or not not my cup of tea but now if if i'm offered that kind of stuff i i tend to turn it down it's a genre that i don't like purely because it's grueling for the mind you it stays with you you know you you go home at the end of the day and you've got these images in your head you can't unsee that and when you're in it, narrating a book, and you're part of it. It's not just like you can listen to it and and fast forward it, or you can just sort of gloss over it. You're there. I'm I'm giving 100%. I'm absolutely sort of delivering this story and performing it with conviction. And ooh, when you're doing something that's horrible, and you're going, this is not something I would read for fun. So you need some stamina to get through that. But I'm very lucky now in later in life that I, you know, I'm, I, I have a, a privilege that I've, I've done enough work that I can now turn down work. And I know I'm fortunate because I know as a young actor, you don't turn down work. You say yes to everything. Has performing audiobooks affected the way you read for pleasure? I only read nonfiction for pleasure. My, my nightstand is all nonfiction. I read, you know, politics and history and uh, uh, books about finance and philosophy and stuff like that. I don't read fiction for, for pleasure. I read fiction as audiobooks. Um, so I get my fill of fiction and I, I pretty much I know what genres I like and what genres I don't. I wish I could be narrating more nonfiction because that's the stuff I, I really like. But then the nonfiction stuff, I won't get to use my my skills as an actor because it's just like reading um you know a, a technical manual or something sometimes. I've done a couple of nonfiction books, but yeah. Not boring is your narration of Gerald Durrell's four memoirs. Memorable for any number of reasons. But I wonder, because his voice, of course, is familiar to us. And he's also traveling around the world, interacting with many people. So you have these range of accents to navigate. But with him, you don't want to blatantly imitate. You want to infer. You want to suggest. It's an essence. And getting his essence. Thank you. Yeah, no, when 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 Naxos asked me to do the Gerald Durrell books, obviously I jumped at it because I I was a fan of the Gerald Durrell books as a child growing up in London in the in the 70s and 80s. But of course the first thing I did was go to the the best encyclopedia for voices, which is YouTube, and jumped onto YouTube and sort of started to find clips of Gerald Durrell talking and and he he's got a very particular way of speaking, his accents um from a particular part of England and he's got this voice like that obviously I'm not doing it very well because I, I need to hear it we had this sort of well-spokenness with a slight sort of sibilant s I, I think if memory serves so I wanted to do that because if Gerald Durrell 
were still alive, he'd be narrating them himself. So I wanted to honour him by having him narrate the book through me as a conduit. I know that might sound a bit woo-woo, but I felt that the books would be served better if I at least attempted some kind of essence of Gerald Durrell so that it sounded again like with the the book set in the, the the 17th 18th centuries that they sound of the time and people spoke in a different way back in the 1950s and 1960s even 1970s people spoke in a different way people speak in a different way all the time accents change all the time one could even say that my natural accent is now probably quite old-fashioned compared to the way a 20-year-old would speak now. With the Durrell books, it, I think it, it serves the text better if the voice of the first-person narrator reflects the voice of the author himself. And it's all set in Argentina and uh, Madagascar and there's lots of foreign languages and Gerald Durrell was a linguist and so am I and I'm half Argentine and, and I love animals. I mean, what's not to like? It, they, were, they were terrific fun doing those books and uh, I just knocked them off really fast. It was, I'm really enjoying this. As the Malagasy people continue with their relentless and suicidal policy of slash-and-burn agriculture, cutting down the forests which are the lifeblood of the island, the Ai and many other unique creatures are threatened with extinction. At one time, the Ai was thought to be extinct, but then it was found that this curious animal was still clinging on in isolated pockets, nearly all of which were threatened by forest destruction. Not often do I go into the booth to narrate an audiobook and come out eight hours later and go, oh my God, you know, I've just, just done, a, done half a book or a whole book, because I was in it, you know. As when you're reading, yeah. Yeah, you can be sitting for hours reading a book and you, the time flies by because it's so good or because you like it or you respond to it in a certain way. And it was the same with the Durrell books. I just, I flew through them because I, I just, it was a page turner for me and I loved every minute of it. If you think about the attributes of a good narrator, what, what are they? And, and what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about making a career in this business? Ah, yes. Young actors who want advice. <laughs> what I normally would say to young actors is, um, look, at the end of the day, it, it all comes down to your voice and your stamina about making sure that you know how to use your voice to portray and convey emotion to the listener so the listener can feel the story and can feel the, the characters. And certainly that's the way I approach audiobooks is I, I'm serving the story, always serving the story. And I think the greatest training that one can have for that is the theatre. You learn how to use your voice, how to stay physically and mentally fit and healthy so that you can sustain eight shows a week, so that you can change subtly. Nuance, it's all about nuance. When you're on a film or TV, you do a scene, you do a few takes, they move on. And it's only that night in bed you go oh I wish I'd done it another way or whatever on stage on theatre you can do it the following night you've got another shot and every time you've got another shot so it's great training on how to train your your mind and your brain into the nuance of character so that you can see the clues and you can connect the dots so I believe if I was saying to a young actor 
who wanted to to go into acting, not audiobooks in in particular, but to go into acting, is don't take yourself seriously. Take the work seriously. Don't take yourself seriously, but make sure you work hard. There's a lot of hard work. People think it's a cakewalk being in this business. You know, not when they're in it. When they're young, they go, oh, "I want to be famous. I want to be an actor." Well, you know what? It's a lot of work. And if you want to be a great film actor, start in theatre. If you want to be a great, be a great audiobook narrator, start in theatre. If you want to be a good animation voice actor, start in theatre. If you want to do all of the above, start in theatre. I can't stress it enough. That is where you learn your craft. It's where you learn how to breathe. I mean, imagine listening to an audiobook where somebody <laughs> breathed like that between each sentence or whatever. That would be painful. The sound editor, the audio engineer, would have to edit all those breaths out. So again, doing theatre teaches you how to control your breath, how to use your breath correctly, how to sustain long sentences um, on one breath, how to use your breath to convey emotion as well. That all comes again from the theatre. Rupert, let me ask you finally. You've been named a golden voice by Audiophile magazine, and... I really want to know what your thoughts are about that. I am totally humbled. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I'm humbled and I'm honored. And if I could wear my heart on my sleeve and say it feels so bloody great to be recognized for a body of work that I didn't even realize I had until I looked at my audiobook CV the other day. And I've done close on 290 audiobooks in the last 24, 24 years. So roughly 12 to 15 audiobooks a year. And I'm thinking, oh my God. It seems like yesterday that I did True History of the Kelly Gang and The Golden Compass. And I'm just so proud to be recognized, especially by you guys at Audiophile. You fly the flag for audiobooks you fly the flag for narrators where many people don't and i i salute you guys for continuing to have a, a magazine and for listening and for reviewing and giving out earphones awards and of course the ultimate <laughs> uh the golden voice thank you thank you very much it's 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 wonderful to be recognized by you guys yes i don't know what else to say. It's it's gorgeous. Thank you so much. And so well-deserved, really, Rupert. All my congratulations. And preparing for this was pure joy. Pure joy. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. That was one of Audiophile Magazine's new golden voices, Rupert Degas. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Stop by audiophilemagazine.com and check out interviews, videos, and stories about all our golden voices throughout the years. Don't forget to follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating on Apple because it does help people to find us. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.